Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cooper. I'm John Perry. And today on Future Express, we are talking about training your personal AI, and we're digging into the mailbag. So this issue of training your AI was brought up in Kevin Kelly's book uh, in a few interesting ways, and I've been thinking about it a lot recently. And it's increasingly becoming a reality of my daily life that I'm training the AI that recommends me videos on YouTube or the AI that recommends me songs on Google Music or Spotify, whatever you use. Mm-hmm. And so I've just been thinking about a lot of what this means. And it seems like the future is going to have a lot more of this relationship where you have a personal AI that it's in your interest to, to raise and train, almost like it's this child following you around. Let's just start there, actually, because one of my first thoughts about this is there's a sense when you know you're training your AI that it feels like you have, you're performing for it. And so, for example, let's just, let's just zoom in on music for a second. Okay. Right? Yeah. So pretty much all the cloud music services now have some kind of recommendation algorithm that learns from your taste. That's a big component of Spotify. I happen to use Google Music myself. People, I feel like there's other services that do the same thing. Right, I think Apple has one, et cetera. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, So every time you listen to a song, it updates its opinion of your taste, right? (laughs) Right. So it's like you're constantly being observed and they're forming a model of you. So like, what about the Guilty Pleasure song, right? What about the song that you don't really feel you should like, for example, but you just want to listen to. Right, right. And it almost seems like you need different listening profiles, like a guilty pleasure profile and a, you know, sophisticated listening with other people present (laughs) profile. (laughs) Right, exactly. So, I mean, because... Yeah, that's funny. I mean, the other issue is not just, you know, maybe there are certain things that you might listen to that you don't want to go into its model of you because it's not how you view yourself, but there's also just... Well, there's just outliers in your taste too. Yeah. There are bands I only like one of their songs. Or you only like them in special, like in certain moments. Right. There's a particular, you have something stuck in your head or there's a particular occasion in which this is the perfect thing. Or maybe you just want to like play for your friend. Oh, that that uh, annoying modern song, that pop song. I hate it. What's that called? Uh, let me just play it for you, so you know what I'm talking about. Right. And you're you literally it on Google on YouTube, and then for the next three weeks, you're seeing like every video that features that artist. Right. And the whole yeah, point yeah, was just yeah. to demonstrate that you hated the song, and now now it thinks you like it. Now, how smart is that algorithm? Like, if you hit um, thumbs down on the YouTube video, will it not? Stick it in your queue, or does it? Uh, I, I'm pretty sure that it'll use... it show you things you hate because it figures that any engagement is good engagement. <laughs> well, no, the the thumbs up, thumbs down functionality, which is also in the music players that aren't just YouTube, I uh, I think helps with this problem. So you can sort of ma- mitigate this. So you can a listen bit. and then thumb thumbs down it. Right here, I'm going to show you this terrible record. Listen and then thumbs down. But that doesn't change the effect of feeling like you're performing for it because now you're conscious. No, it's of, just another, it's just a more effective performance. Yeah, it just allows yeah, you yeah. to tailor your performance. Right, right. But it still has this feeling of like every time I'm listening to music, I'm sort of being watched by a computer. Well, and this is a recurring uh, experience of 
the future, I feel like, is you're always being watched in one way or another. Right, exactly. So to some extent, we're just talking about how much is the future more like um, performative than well, but, the present. But you're being watched in a very particular way. You're being watched in a... Like, it's trying to define your identity. <laughs> yes. Right? And so you worry about being pigeonholed, or at least I do. Right? right like, so right. if I... You know, maybe Some all I might w- worry about being insufficiently pigeonholed, right? <laughs> that's the other. That's the other. Perhaps side. I mean one or the other, right, right? right? But you know, so perhaps for a couple of weeks, all I want to do is listen to the same two bands over and over again. Right. But I don't necessarily want its model of me to be, you know, John only likes things that sound like this. Right. Right. Uh, so how do I? So then I've got to think. Well, okay, maybe I want to. If I, I guess if you could shut off the algorithm, like. Probably that's the feature you need. Right, right. I remember uh, we used to use a thing called um, Last FM, right, to track uh, like iTunes plays, and then it right. would give you uh, recommendations. And a cool feature that it had was it just had an off, like temporary off button where you could just play something without it uploading it to Last FM. I feel like that's kind of essential. Which was nice for when you wanted those like sort of guilty pleasure or like occasional listens. Or just when you're checking something out and you didn't know if you liked it yet. Right. That happens to me a lot. I get lazy and then I like download a bunch of stuff at once and then I'm like listening to 12 albums and I'm going to actually like one of them, but I need to hear them all three times before I know that. Right. (laughs) Or something Yeah. So that feature has to be there, but even that doesn't really get rid of it because you want to be taking advantage of the training. The training is useful and increasingly with something like music that's become, you know, the databases for music are getting larger, the categorization schemes are getting better. Mm-hmm. Uh, this type of stuff that began with Pandora, gosh, almost eight years ago or something like that. Yeah, how, I don't know how long. I mean, I'd have yeah. to look it up to find exactly, like, it actually feels like it's coming to fruition, like it's actually becoming useful. Um, but yeah, I'll be sitting at, you know, my desk away from my computer, and I'll have the algorithm just playing me a mix, and when something I don't like comes on, I feel, oh, I better get up now and thumbs down this or it's going <laughs> to get positive reinforcement that I that I like it, you know? Right. And that's like, it's it does feel like getting up to like train your dog, you know, don't jump on the, on my friend who came to Bad the door. Bad phone. Don't play Radiohead. <laughs> well, yeah, ex- sure, exactly. Something like that. Or whatever band you right. don't like. Ted yeah. feels very strongly <laughs> about insert, not liking Radiohead. Insert the band you don't want to hear here. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, that's a little exhausting, but it's, it's also kind of fun. I mean, to, and it's, especially when it works. Sure. Sure. And I, I feel like increasingly I get recommendations that work. I mean, I, I'll, I'll, let's talk about where it seems like it works and where it seems like it doesn't work. So I feel like the recommendation algorithms that you can train on the music services seem to work pretty well these days. And it's the video recommendations on YouTube seem to work pretty well. Things like Amazon recommendations are still shitty, <laughs> as far as I can tell. Really? Um, hmm. That would be ha- my s- description of the current landscape. I definitely don't usually buy things from Amazon recommendations, so maybe you're right. But I think that that has a problem because I think it's easier for the algorithms to learn from things that you have like a sort of constant engagement with, like music, right? And right. So you know, you listen to the same record multiple times or style of songs multiple times. That's giving it a lot of useful data. With purchases, I mean, some purchases are like that, you know, recurring purchases, but a lot of purchases are, uh, you you buy something once and then, you know, you're done with it. I don't know. I feel like they don't have, there's not, 
Like I might buy one thing in a day, but listen to a hundred songs in a day. I, maybe that's what I'm trying to say is that there's yeah. just like, they're not getting as much data, period. Right, right. Well, yeah, I think maybe, maybe we shop less than the average person. But, but I, I don't I, think the average person I, buys I, more things in a day than listens to songs. No, I think you're right about that. I think you probably hear more songs than, th- well, than things you'd buy on Amazon anyway. I think, you know, you probably buy a lot of immediately consumed things, foods and stuff like that. But anyway, that's true. Um, I think there's some, you know, validity to the idea that they're just not getting enough data. It's, I think also the product categories just are a lot wider for Amazon. So all the possible physical objects you could buy on Amazon, a lot of room to be wrong. You know, they have to pick five out of mm-hmm. all this billion. Uh, whereas like all the songs that you could listen to next, well, everything that's coming up next is a song. So right there, it's, Right. A much more manageable category. And then on top of that, it's probably like a song within a genre of the previous song you listened to. Right. So that's an even more manageable category. And then at that point, you know, at that level, the algorithms do work. They do play a song next that's similar somewhat to the song they just played uh, along some axis. But, uh, uh, you know, then it's a question of how much do you like that song? And that's been getting better, I think, uh, lately. Right, but I actually think it's even better with YouTube. And I think hmm. the reason for that is, again, they have a lot of data. Right. You can watch a lot of videos in a day. They have a lot of users. They have yep. a large database. Uh, but I think that, now this may get some pushback from some people. I don't know if you would even agree with this statement. Okay. I feel like the medium of video mm-hmm. is more concrete relative, or less abstract than the medium of music. Uh, yeah, that that strikes me as correct. I think... Especially the genre of video that is YouTube generally. I mean, while there is plenty of fictional abstract stuff on YouTube because YouTube honestly has everything under the sun. Right. But YouTube, for whatever reason, culturally does not seem to be a place you go for narrative filmmaking. There's a lot of... There's a lot of different things on there, but they're all in the broad category of like documentary, reality... Non-fictional uh, content. Non-fiction. Right. Right. Yeah. And a lot of it's, you know, opinion-based. It's... Uh, reviews or or video blogs or political commentary or punditry or discussion shows. Right. Uh, but all of that stuff, I feel like, exists in a very concrete space. And right. so it's like, if I like this person talking on this topic, chances are things related to that I will also find interesting. And I feel like that works pretty effectively. Yeah, that's interesting. I, uh, I get frustrated with YouTube, but I think it's because I've trained it poorly. Sure. Um, like, I... I yeah, that's the thing is you got to put your time in. does a good job of showing me things that I've looked up before that I did like and that I, like, I know it knows, like, for instance, how long you watch a video because they use that to, mm-hmm. to monetize. So the, that's some information that they can probably use to show you, you know, videos you got all the way through, you probably liked more than videos you didn't get all the mm-hmm. way through. Um, but I get annoyed that it won't show me more different things, but I think, Basically, the reason is that I haven't spent enough time searching through it and feeding it data about what I like. Um, And I probably could put that time in, but I wish there was a shortcut to putting that time in. No, and I don't think there is. And that's kind of actually the crux of what I want to talk about, which is that how much of the future is about the actual work of of training your AI. I mean, it's not something that happens automatically. I mean, it- right. Well, and if it's the world is, if the world continues to be the way it is now, it's not training your one AI. It's training a bunch of AIs. Right. That have specialized, but in some ways overlapping, um, 
purposes. For example, my music AI could tell YouTube about music artists whose videos I would Assuming like. the companies are in communication, which right. if you're going with Google Music and YouTube, great. But if it's Apple Music and YouTube, good luck. Right. Well, even between Google Music and YouTube, I haven't noticed artists that I've searched for in Google Music showing up in my YouTube recommended videos. But I, you know... That's possible, though. It's possible. I mean, be smart for them to be working on that. I don't know if they are. But um, anyway, I think there's ways that these AIs could work together or even ultimately become just one big AI that does all this stuff. Well, um, trying to raise one AI child would be easier than trying to raise six, six AI child that are all walled garden children. from each other. Yeah, exactly. Like your, fa- you know, your Facebook algorithm that you're tra- constantly trying to train so that it shows you the posts your friends make and doesn't show you the posts your acquaintances make, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, there's just so many of these algorithms that we now have to train in order to get the best results, decent really. results yeah. out of it. I mean, there's a big, I think, leap from when you first start using these services to when you've got it 50% trained. Then maybe after that, it drops off in 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 uh, reward for your time spent. And you got to keep giving right. it the relevant positive and negative reinforcement. And the thing is that you're yeah. you're changing as an individual too. So uh, it's like Tamagotchis have taken over everything. Well, you know what it is too is they're forming a mental model. I mean, to, they're not the AI isn't really thinking necessarily, but right. But it's uh, modeling your. It's, it's developing a model of you, but you also right. have to develop a model of it. Because I'm always trying to deduce, like, right, right. like what? what signals is it reading off of me, and how can I send it the right ones? <laughs> right. And that's a really strange game to play with an algorithm. Right, right. Like, knowing that uh, YouTube checks how long you watch a yeah. video might change your... If I was enjoying something, but I wanted it to not stop watching it, I might leave it playing in the background, mm-hmm. for example, to game that algorithm. Well, and the thing is, the contemporary philosophy of companies like Apple and Google, even more so Apple probably, seems to be that they don't want their users trying to mentally model their algorithms whatsoever. No. They just they're they're looking for the user that's just floating along, doing their thing, you know, using their toaster box computer thing, and it just kind of does what they want. Uh but you know, if you're at all like a power computer user that's like hard to swallow, right? You're like, well, how is it, what is it, information is it getting from me? And how do I give it the right information? Right, right. Well, is I think thought, there's, a, yeah. there's a point at which it works so well that you just accept it. Sure. But Apple in particular always seems to think it's reached that point before they have. You know, it right. usually works better than like the competition. It's usually an improvement on the last model. But the oftentimes it's still a brittle computer and it still needs like, juicing from its user and on their better products they give you the access to that somewhere they hide it somewhere where you can find it and on their worst products they don't do that but it's yeah i think there's but increasingly i want like a algorithm report yeah i want somewhere on on their website that says like here's the rules of the algorithm i mean only nerds are going to read this obviously what i want is like an admin panel for the algorithm where i can go in and actually do after the fact editing so like the algorithm's doing what it does but then it it reports its results oh so you can like delete the yeah the time you listen to the song that you didn't actually like That's exactly what i'm saying like like the way that i go into my history to like delete the embarrassing web page so that you don't see that i you know that i went there Mm -hmm. it's the same thing you go into your algorithm history and you just go oh i never listened to this song and then 
that's gone from right. its model of you. So that because here's a, there's a couple reasons you might want to do that. One is like this innocuous guilty pleasure situation. Another is like let's say you you know really wanted to listen to like a very um, offensive song, a song with a lot of cursing and mm-hmm. swearing in it, but you spend your time uh driving kids around like uh then that's your job and you use your phone to play music while you're you know driving kids around or Mm -hmm. something so then you need to be able to go in there and be like oh don't play any uh of this obscene death metal that i love when uh the kids are in the car (laughs) right right you need like like, section off you almost need to section off parts of your taste for like Right. So like you need profiles or you need some kind of filters or you need some, you know, some control over the results so that because it's your music taste isn't singular. It's not like I'm Ted and I always have exactly the same music taste. And no matter where I am, I want to listen to something from my music taste. It's context specific. Well, and that's something I've been struggling with too, using these music algorithms is I'll be listening to it, playing me some music and a track will come on and I will often have the thought, Oh, I do kind of like this, but this is so not appropriate right now. <laughs> yes. Right? This is like kind of like putting me in a dark mood. I'm trying to get some work, but I, but aesthetically I like it. So right. I don't know how to categorize this or how to interact with this right now. Do I thumbs down this because I don't want it to be part of this type of mix in the future? Is it even smart enough to know that? I don't think or do so. Or do I just want to like skip it, but does skipping it still think I don't like it? Or is that treated differently by the algorithm algorithm than just a thumbs down? Um, like th- that's the other thing I was saying is I want right. to know what the rules are. Like, like how much is a thumbs down worth versus a, th- a skip? <laughs> right. And can you counteract it with a later search? Cause what I would probably do to game the algorithm is skip it now. Right. And then ser- intentionally search for that song later mm-hmm. just so that it had it in my history. Right. Um, but then that's like something you've got to do. That's more of this, like, we gotta, you gotta like tend to your algorithm. Right. Exactly. The point of this is like, we're not in any way making this less work. No, it's like, uh, why not just do the work of putting on a song at that point? If you're going to, if you're going to go to that much trouble. Well, and so what's interesting about this though, is that I think if you did embrace this work and you worked really hard at it and you understood the algorithm well, uh, that you would be in a better place than if you were just curating your musical taste without the help of the algorithm. In other words, I feel like it can enhance sort of the skills of, say, a DJ type person. You know, it can turn sure. them into sort of a super DJ. And like something that. <laughs> sort of a super DJ. Please, somebody sample that. Well, really, <laughs> well, really, what you're doing is you're actually you're training the computer to be a DJ for you. Yeah. Right? But because it's you've trained it in a way it's, it's, it's you, it's, you know, it, it's a reflection of you. And actually th- this is something that I, that was raised in the Kevin Kelly book that was very briefly touched on, but I thought was super interesting, which is he talked about in the future, um, people training AIs and having them trained so well that they then license them out. You know, maybe they just put them right. online for free or right. maybe they charge for them. Or I, I don't know what the business model would be if, or if there'd be any sure. business model at all, but I've put all this effort into training this AI that has super good taste. I did all this legwork of thumbs downing and thumbs upping and, right. and culling. And or now maybe, you can benefit from it. Or maybe it. what I did is I like built a giant database of every uh, you know elite review written in the last hundred years and right. fed it to a deep learning algorithm and you know built built this AI that can recommend you know. 
Right, but someone could probably go through the same stack of reviews and through tweaking the variables end up with a different AI. So I feel like sure. the final product is going to be have some kind of t- it's, it's it's basically a instantiation of taste, right? It's a <laughs> it's like a taste bot. It's a taste bot. Okay. Right? And creating the taste bot yourself may just be a lot of work, right? But but that may be something that you want someone else to do for you to like develop a taste bot. I mean, we go to other people for their taste as reviewers or their taste as DJs. Right. And this is just basically giving those people a little more power and basically being able to uh, give you access to something that works when they're not there. Right. Like, right. It's automating their taste. Right. Exactly. It can be used for more people and when they're sleeping and uh, you know, infinitely. So if you know, like a reviewer or a DJ really well and a new song comes out, Right. You have a mental model of them. You, you can you try can to guess. You could start to guess, like, would they think. like this or not? Right, but right. the algorithm would, would have an opinion on that right away, immediately, right. without the reviewer or DJ having even to weigh in. Well, and the idea is the algorithm would be as effective or more effective than, like, your mental model. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right, right. Yeah, it makes sense to me. Um, so, so I think that that's an interesting place to go. And I, I to me, that seems like a good prediction. I think that this is going to be... We're all going to be doing this job to varying degrees, but some people will really embrace doing it a lot. Yeah, I think it depends on the sector pretty intensely because it matters whether this is something that has to be personalized to you and your preferences or whether your preferences are culturally enough determined. Like, I think music is something that is subjective, but it's also primarily like a shared experience. Mm Mm-hmm. So a lot of people's interest in music is in liking music their friends at least know about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that case, reviewers have long been tastemakers in music. I can definitely see algorithmic reviewers, you know, doing a good job of being tastemakers in music. Um, but I think this can work in videos too. Like I think you... I, I, don't disagree. Yeah. I don't disagree videos as well, but I think there's... There are things where personal, like truly personal preferences might be more valuable to the average person than like group norms, in which case having somebody else train your AI for you may not really be... Do you a, have an example? That much better. I'm trying to think of one. Right off the well, top I don't of mean... And, and just to be clear, uh, I don't mean someone training your AI for you. I just mean like we're having this problem where I want to train the AI, but really the AI needs different modes. Like it needs to know what to do when I'm in the car with the kids. It needs to right. know what to do when I'm feeling sad. It needs to know what to do when I'm working, right? So really, it's playlists. It's playlists, but playlists that aren't pre-written. It's like playlists that are in te- that are smart playlists. I mean, which is the term already that, you know, these music companies are using for this stuff. Sure. Well, and uh, at but, least on the Google one, they do ask you, one of the ways you can start one of those smart playlists is by it asking you, like, what are you doing? And it has a series of, contexts like hanging out or getting started and that's so weird right now they're very vague and to me they don't map all that well so those are almost too vague like at the moment um the better strategy on that service i think is like think of something that's like what you want to hear and then search for that and then it'll play you similar things um but what i want is like a specific yeah it's i think it honestly needs to be able to combine both of those approaches it needs to be able to tell you know to say, okay, here's 
some music in the general genre or style that you just mentioned that's also appropriate for this context. Right. Because I almost feel like they're just uh, different axes and that you always have to do both. But let's say like a DJ that you like or a musician that you like aggressively spent a month training an algorithm aimed at a particular context. Right. Wouldn't you want to have access to that? And wouldn't if they posted right. that online, wouldn't you be interested in clicking on that? No, I'm not a Spotify user, but I think Spotify has something like this, right? Don't they have like, um, I think they're like more like celebrity playlists, but I think they're just basically like mixtapes that are like sort of pre, pre-packaged. And, yeah, and I have to say, I don't endorsed use by Spotify either, unlike the rest of the world, apparently. But yeah. um, if it's just I a, think they have a service like that. I could be wrong. But if it's a scripted playlist, then it's not quite what I'm talking about. No, I get that. But yeah. it's um, it but seems it's, like a step in that direction. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, anyways, uh, now wh- one other place I wanted to go with this is, and I, I feel like we've touched on this before, but recommendation algorithms are, I guess, mostly what we're talking about here. Um, because you could be also training your AI for other right jobs. Right. Your AI, like a uh, personal assistant. That's an example of something where I feel like... Too personalized? Basic training can be done at the factory. Right. But most of the really useful stuff is like, it knows exactly which people I want to get phone calls from and which people yeah. I want to take phone messages from. Like, that's not something that a celebrity or a, or a company can do for me. I right, like taste-based AI can maybe be exported and licensed Because there's a cultural... People. Component to taste. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but something that, you know, knows my daily routine is probably not exportable to right. other people. You know, I'm thinking about this, I'm just thinking like, yeah, if I had the option of, you know, using the algorithm to play me something from my taste or using the algorithm to play me something from DJ Shadow's taste, right? I'd just probably pick the Shadow taste most of the time. Especially if... <laughs> or like, especially if that wasn't the only option, there were many options right. of that quality, but in other genres. Especially too. if, you know, imagine yeah. this was a future DJ right. that has fully embraced algorithms as part of the DJ process. Because that's what a DJ does. They use whatever the newest technology is. Right. And that has like, instead of spending all their time digging through crates of records, yeah, they spend have, all their time learning the ins and outs of the algorithm. They robots do that for them. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> no, and, they, and they, they've really gotten like... If you ask this like future DJ like the difference between a thumbs down and a skip, they know exactly the difference. Like right. they've figured that out right. and they know how to exploit that to right. to get the best result. Um, but yeah, so staying with taste for a second, right? I'm um, having fun imagining this future DJ. Yeah, yeah. Like this is just I, I don't know. He's got mirrored AR glasses in my mind, and <laughs> I'm just imagining him like setting up his algorithmic system that uh, you know reads the heart rates of the dancers and like automatically adjusts the BPM to the average heart rate in the room and then slowly brings it up, brings it up, brings it up. Well, that's, I mean, innovation along a different axis entirely. <laughs> I'm, just thinking, I'm just thinking like, what kind of technology could you bring to the, you know, to the act of DJing? And there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot really um, of things where you could be controlling uh, you know, as DJs do, you could be controlling the um, high level functions of the machine, but actually it can be doing quite a lot of automated right. stuff. Well, you know, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I feel at a crossroads here because there's so many different directions right, I want to go. We can go. leave that. I just wanted to mention future DJ was, was amusing me. <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's hang on to that because the idea of getting that, all that like heartbeat feedback is fascinating. Let's just, let's just put a pin in that for now. <laughs> okay. Um, because if you talk about somebody who knows one of these sort of opaque algorithms really well, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, somebody knows how they work. Someone at these companies, I presume. Oh, gosh, knows how I they hope work. so. 
Um, although that's the thing too, right? Is a, at some increasingly point, a lot of these algorithms, nobody knows how they work. Right. If you're lucky, a whole company of people together sort of know how they work. Or, or you can only figure out how they work by doing something that's sort of akin to doing science experiments. Right. Like when I... Giving them a bunch of input and see what outputs Give this out. kind of input. Yeah, I tend to get this result from the algorithm. Right. In any event, it definitely becomes a skill to know how to interact with these algorithms. And like that, that's definitely, I feel like, you know, we want to talk about superstars in the future who are going to be rewarded in the market. I feel like that's one of them. I mean, we already see this with like things like SEO. I mean, this sure. is, I think, the most pervasive example uh-huh. of that where you have specialists that... SEOs are basically algorithm tamers. Right. And this is for yeah. people who may not know search engine optimization. This is basically people who know the Google algorithm primarily, since that's the main search engine people use, like, and how to game that. Right. Right. But increasingly just gaming any algorithm, I feel like is going to be a major, major skill. Right. Uh, I think gaming Facebook is also a big part of SEO these days. Like there's things that, you know, there's formatting and things that Facebook. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's like, yeah, you know, one or two big companies, algorithms and you, optimize people's stuff so that it will get the best. But I feel like where that maybe applies to a couple areas of life. Now it may apply to five or six areas of life. Yeah. I could definitely see, see that expanding Um, and having, you know, algorithm tricking being a skill that you either learn personally or, or buy from someone else. Right. Yeah. Um, And in case, and maybe tricking isn't even the right word because if you're just trying to get good results, like if you're just trying to train it effectively, right? right. It's like a, it's like being a good dog trainer. I mean, it's wait, like being a power user of a computer program. It's like yeah. you know, it's not exactly hacking, but it's just knowing it in and out. But it's a computer program where there's no manual available. I feel like that's the difference, right? So like somebody right. could be a power right. Final Cut Pro user and they've read the manual and they've watched all the videos, right? But a power user of an opaque algorithm has again done sort of this science experiment process of sort of. Figuring like, it out. Right. Or it's like a little bit like, uh, you know, video games, sort of like the way... It is like playing a game. Yeah. You try to, you know, they, you try they, things and you see what works. They intentionally don't tell you big parts of it because the whole fun is figuring it out. Right. Except right? in this case, they don't tell you parts of it because either they don't know or it's a trade secret. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't know or they're... So the motivations are a little massively different. Massively incentivized to, tr- to not tell yeah. you. Yeah. 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 Um, but the other thing... Uh, that I wanted to say about recommendation algorithms specifically is if they, and maybe we've covered this before, but if they're good enough, right? To me, this is a promising future, one where we might have actual meritocracy in the area of discovery of online content, right? Maybe. I mean, it, it, so right now we talk, we talk about the long tail, right? We talk about uh, this idea that there's endless niches on the internet the internet makes it easier for that niche content to reach its niche audience. Right. right? Uh, but there's still quite a bit of friction there, right? It's still, it's not easy to match those people up. I mean, or it could be a lot easier, right? And and this is the solution, I think. Okay. Right? I mean, Right, because these are algorithms who work day and night trying to find all the appropriate content for you. Right. And they're, they're working while you sleep. Uh, right. And there probably could even be like a meta algorithm that takes in all the content that's good for you and then ranks it so that when you have free time, yeah. you're like loading up the most promising stuff. First. Now, certain things have to be in place. Information has to be shared. Right. Which means privacy goes down. Right. And or you have 
a lot of control in the hands of one company, as in, say, YouTube. That's the other model, I suppose. Right, right. Um, well, and there's likely to be at least some walls because, I mean, we're likely to have a world where, like, Facebook and YouTube still exist. Right. Or the thing that's taken their place looks very like them. Yeah. And uh, they're not going to share data with each other and i mean like facebook's gone to the point now where they basically make you upload your video a second time because they privilege their own videos over youtube so highly in their algorithm so that's something that people have figured out right and that's a negative byproduct of competition for us yeah that's just creating two copies of the same file Mm -hmm. for no reason that have different view counts and different comment threads yeah and that's frustrating it's you know so we could see i you know that's the thing that i was worried about with these with these developments is um, how do they work together? And you might actually need the government even <laughs> to say it, to come in and just make a law that says you have to have some kind of information interchange and allow people if they opt in to, to share data among their AIs. Among well, it depends their, upon, you know, again, we've talked about this before, but it depends upon how the economic incentives end up because we do see a lot of voluntary sharing of data. We do. Uh, that true. you wouldn't maybe have predicted many years ago because it, in some cases that sort of open platform model actually is financially successful for the companies that pursue it. Uh, yeah, and sometimes I think the it's wall, also yeah. uh, ideologically supported by a lot of the people who happen to be doing the innovating. Sure. So I think that's a little bit of, like, I think for the reason Google in particular is right. so good about sharing data. Um and right, they, they certainly don't share everything, but like they any, share a lot. But for example, having but an they, API for their maps program is a good example of this. Right, right? they allow anybody to for plug into that. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Yeah, and that's a good business decision, and I think that's been demonstrated now that at least in some of these cases, being more open is good. Well, and Kevin Kelly would predict that that is the the winning trend. I think right is that the sharing of data is inevitable in his words. I hope he's right about that. I think you know there's a cultural. Uh, inclination up in the Silicon Valley to uh, believe that. And um, I think self-fulfilling prophecy, right? As long as they're the people who are building the tools, then maybe that becomes self-fulfilling and then, then that's it. Um, but uh, I don't know. It's, I think there's a possibility that a more Facebooky model right. wins and but that let's, would be unfortunate. But fine. Let's indulge though, that the walled garden model doesn't win. Okay. Uh, I'm, hey, because listen, I, that's a better world. So. I mean, I like to I'll, think about this. I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> I mean, as someone who <laughs> likes to create content, but hates doing promotions, it's fun to daydream about a utopian future where I never have to do any promotions. I just add the thing to the global database and the really smart recommendation algorithm figures out if anybody actually wants to see it. I mean, right. that doesn't, that doesn't prevent me from getting, you know, realizing that nobody actually likes my content for no, example but i think i would be less upset if i was told that by a faceless algorithm than by a person listen we ran the numbers and nobody like this is ranked so lowly on everybody's watch list yeah. that no one's ever going to see it for a million years right uh and i'd just be like well i guess i gotta make something better right well like clearly i shouldn't be putting my time and effort into that particular thing right let's look for something else that ranks a little better but it's sad right now when as an artist or a creator you make something and you never really know for sure you think it's good maybe no one's looking at it because they just don't know how to find it and your promotions aren't good enough yeah i feel like or maybe it's just bad but it's hard to tell the difference anecdotally at least i'm finding good things that i like that are you know one to seven years old every day of the week 
Right. And I feel like every time I find something that like I somehow slept on for five years, like I think, oh, I vaguely think I heard of this once a long time ago, mm-hmm. but it was like not the exact right moment to go check it out. And then I forgot. And now I'm discovering it and I'm like, oh, I really like this. And I lost five years of enjoying it because there was no system in place to, to get me to experience it. Right. Um, and at the same time, I suspect for every one of those I find, there's got to be untold numbers of ones I'm not finding. Right. Absolutely. You know. And it would be great if that problem were fixed. Uh, and actually, speaking of discovery and uh, this issue, one we've talked about video and music a lot, but we yeah. haven't talked about podcasts. Right? Ah, podcasts. Because podcasts have the a huge start. have a huge discovery problem, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, they have a they have a couple of problems. One of which is there's sort of a monopoly access point, sort of cho- like the the, really? iTunes, the iTunes chokehold. I feel like is a well, but there's so many different podcasting services now. I mean, I, I don't maybe there iTunes are, is still the dominant one, but the other ones that they don't show up on our stats at all. It's like iTunes and then on the other, you know. Yeah, I guess I, I, I'm not sure about that. But I mean, the pod, there's obviously, there's nothing about, inherently podcasts, I think, are actually less controlled than, say, like a YouTube video, which is That's literally true. on the YouTube servers in their database, right, right? Right, right, Like a podcast exists out on the web, you know, through an RSS feed. It's all um, open source uh, right. technologies uh, driving it. So I feel like, in a way, that works against, it having good discovery because even as much of a monopoly as iTunes is, I would almost guess that it would have to be a bigger monopoly to be a good recommender of podcasts. Right. Or like, no, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, do you think they have enough data? I mean, I think so many people listen to podcasts outside of that system. I think more people listen to podcasts outside of the iTunes system than watch online video outside of the YouTube system. That's a totally unsupported supposition, but... I have zero idea about the efficacy of... I don't know. Okay. No idea. <laughs> I mean, maybe. Maybe that's true. Maybe it isn't. I have no idea. That's... Um, yeah, I don't know what the numbers are there. It seems like, at least within the iTunes ecosystem, which is the single biggest one, if even if it's not a majority, um, that's, that's a majority of our listeners... Um, Speaking of which, rate us on iTunes. Oh, yes. Let's just throw that in there. Yes, we haven't plugged that Help in us with the algorithm. We have, I think, 36 five-star reviews last time I checked. Well, every time we actually ask people to do this, and uh, a lot of people do it, and we thank you for it. We uh, think that's really great. Please rate us on iTunes. And uh, I think the iTunes recommendations are bad because uh, they are not terribly personalized. I don't think they look at what other po- right. podcasts you look at. Oh, because they can't really get that information. No. Well, that's they, maybe the problem. They could if they stole it from iTunes, right? But I don't think they do. Mm. I, don't, I don't, it doesn't look like, as far as I can tell, that's not how their system works. Well, and I, like, yeah. And, and yeah, see, that's the problem. So they is, are just they recommending have, like the most popular podcast, which means they're recommending NPR and stuff like, well, and like this is a problem with podcast statistics too. It's impossible to get a completely accurate number that tells you how many people are listening and how long they listen and all those things that are available on YouTube. So again, right. I think the, the, that's the downside of it being a decentralized system is that you're responsible for building that yourself. And, uh, I, I have done a um, very cursory job of that for our podcast. Right. So we have our Google Analytics. We don't have a whole lot going on. And just to be clear, when you can I probably build a better solution than what we have. Just now. to be clear, this is not about us. Like 
like the fact that I'm complaining about discovery for podcasts has to do with me as a podcast consumer, consumer right? Because right. I, God knows, I listen to plenty of podcasts. I don't John have dr- drives a lot for his jobs, exactly. And I, but I don't exactly have an feel like I have a very easy time finding new podcasts. In fact, I that problem you were just describing of like finding out you've been sleeping on something that's been around for four years. I have that all the time. Right. Podcasts. Right. Like, oh, th- why Why didn't anybody tell me about this? Yeah. I yeah. recently, yeah, the, the most recent podcast I started listening to, it was in its third season. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I I could have known about this two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, that, that seems to happen to me a lot these days where I feel like as like a dedicated nerd who, you know, you know, is interested in this stuff, I, I used to more often find out about things, you know, before they were released or at the time they were released instead of much, much later. I think that is partially due to me not putting enough time into these algorithms and partially due to the algorithms not quite being pervasive enough and good enough yet. But it does seem like it's inevitably coming soon. So that's the good news. I hope so. Uh, so I, I feel like we've kind of exhausted yeah. most of the things I want to go over with that topic. So we're going to do some mailbag because our last episode actually got a lot of responses from you are listeners. So thank you for that. That was awesome to get all this email. Uh, so we're going to talk about some of it. Yeah, we don't have time to discuss every single letter we got, but uh, we appreciate all of them. And thank you so much for sending them in. Shall we start with the ones that are directly relevant to last episode? Sure, we can just go through those quickly. Okay. Um, go ahead. What's the first one? Uh, so a listener in Sweden wrote uh, yes. to us. Ludwig Hedenborg. Sorry yeah. if it, the pronunciation is bad. He wrote to us to talk about uh, his experience in reality TV production. Right. And, and how that might be affected by future technologies. Yeah. So he says in this email that uh, over the last five years, there's been a lot of change. He's basically a camera person in reality TV. He says that it used to be basically have one person per camera shooting different angles different angles maybe you have two or three cameras per shoot um but these days uh reductions in price and uh uh the you know improvements in the technology allow him one camera person to have 42 cameras covering uh an area so what's good about that is in reality tv obviously it's not supposed to be scripted you don't know what's going to happen you don't know where the characters are going to go as a camera person so you can just cover basically everywhere and have it all available he says that uh you can only record around five so you'd still need a human being doing the switching in the control room, watching all the monitors and picking which right, which camera feeds are we actually go going to recorder print to the hard disk exactly. Uh, but other than that, well, when he talks about that, well, is due to change, right? Right. Well, because that's clearly a limitation of current hard drive speed and price. And right. There's technologies available now where you could be recording on all of these. Uh, they'd just be expensive. But he's thinking that basically someday he'll be able to cover a whole space in cameras kind of like hit record and be done with his job for the day. Um, right. Increasingly the cameras themselves might have some intelligence built into them that can, you know, if they need to pivot a little bit, or maybe there's just so many of them that that never, even right. that doesn't need to happen. Right. So I was thinking about um, all the different, you know, sort of limitations of this because um, there are still some things that are best done at capture time with current technology cameras, such as like setting focus. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, Obviously, a camera can recognize a face, 
mm-hmm. and it can follow a face and keep the face in focus. That's technology that already exists and works pretty well. But if you want to make artistic decisions about, you know, putting somebody out of focus so you see what's in their hands or something like that, that still takes a human operator somewhere on the chain. But that uh, is liable to change soon because there's technology now that allows you to change focus after the fact because of multiple lenses per camera and a depth reading. Well, right. We should also right? point out that there's also, of course, it, this is even easier than changing focus after the fact, but changing the frame after the fact. If you <clears throat> right. record a very, very high resolution frame that's too big, you can later crop it to whatever angle you wanted. Right. Previous generations of cameras, you didn't have the leeway to do it because they were barely high res themselves. But right. nowadays you can, you know, you can overshoot. Uh, for example, I've heard that almost every single frame of the first season of uh, uh, House of Cards, like David Fincher just went in and reframed after the fact. And, you know, they were shooting 4K, they were finishing to 1K, so they had tons of, of leeway there. And then, of course, uh, another thing that you, you used to have to get in the camera, but you don't anymore is color, right? So with the new generations of cameras, they're also high dynamic range that mm-hmm. you can do color in the computer later and it looks great and mm-hmm. you have a lot more leeway than you used to have. So increasingly you can set your cameras up to get like wide, everything's in focus, haphazardly framed coverage of just the space. And then from all those angles and with all of the processing that you can do, you can create convincing artistic images after the fact. Right. And, and the, the relationship to the last episode is, of course, we were talking about technological unemployment. And I think this is a good illustration of a trend, right? Where first you have, you know, five different people holding five different cameras. And then eventually now you have one person controlling remotely 42 cameras, which right. is the number he gave. Right. Uh, and then maybe shortly after that, even that person becomes obsolete because you just set up enough cameras and you record from all of them. Well, because the cameras start flying themselves, placing themselves. Or like, there's just right? so they're many just of so them that, you know, ev- they don't even need to move because every angle is already represented. Right. 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 So what, whatever it is, we can imagine a clear trend where we go f- less and less people until finally there's zero people. Right. Now, the interesting thing about it, though, is all of that's creating more work for the editor, right? Like, so a lot of that's just moving right, the and, work. And, to- it's, and it's created whole new job categories. Like uh, the colorist is, you know, now an extremely important part of the finishing of any um, television or film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, 20 years ago, color timing was, was a, a technical process that basically was just supposed to retain whatever had been shot on the film. And it didn't do anywhere n- near as much work Right. Uh, so uh, there's a position on a set now called a DIT, a digital imaging technician. Yeah. That didn't exist. You know, there's no camera loader anymore. That that magazine loader is gone. <laughs> right. That, you don't need that. Um, but the DIT is now there. So, uh, and maybe the camera person goes away completely, but the DIT is still going to be there because getting your files home is still the crucial thing that if you don't do that right, you didn't have a shoot. So... It's the one person you're, you know, you're going to have there for basically a fail safe. Right. And setting your Um, final focus and crop decisions. Yeah. You could have that be the same person that's editing ins and outs of shots, but that, I feel like that could also be a separate job. I mean, the person who has a good eye for that might be different than the person who has the good narrative sense. Right. It seems more natural that that would be a job that goes to the colorist to me, because that's the person who's more like... I feel like the cinematographer and the colorist are almost swapping positions right. in importance slowly on film sets in general. Interesting. 
And that increasingly, but then colorist will increasingly be sort of a misnomer for that person. They'll be more like the right. There are it's already a misnomer because they're already doing visual effects. They're doing compositing. They're doing it's um, like the post production visual supervisor or something. Yeah, they're like just basically the um, the post image person. You know, yeah, post image director or something. Um, but yeah, that's a that's a job that I feel like is getting more and more artistically powerful because of technological change. Well, so maybe that's While, the answer for for Ludwig here because he says. Well, he suggests that he has to transition into generating VR content. Right, for but maybe he should try to become a colorist. Well, right, right. Uh, I don't think the fa- I don't think we'll stop filming things because I think there's still a real value um, to filming real world things, even if we can do. Um, photorealistic CG. Uh, so well, I, I also think, think that this is mostly know. applies to, uh, to the reality genre, right? right I right, mean, right. which is what we're talking about here, sure. right? I think like some of this stuff, I mean, this sort of just put up a wall of cameras everywhere is probably not as good for fictional storytelling. Well, it's not economical for fictional storytelling because yeah. you know already what you want to shoot. So you may as well just put a couple of cameras in the correct direction. And you might as well put some intelligence up front so that somebody's making some, of the creative decisions in the beginning so that you're not having so much work later. If you, if you have some idea of what you want, I feel like. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) I don't know. I still think, uh, the general trend across the board is going to be to do more of the aesthetics in post. I mean, there's a lot of work here for assistant editors too, right? I mean, like if you have a hundred camera feeds, you probably need two assistant editors rather than, well, yeah, like I don't want to be grouping and syncing that batch. Right. Yeah. Oh boy. (laughs) Um, or maybe three assistant editors. I mean, I think, so you are losing jobs, but I'm, I'm, it's not clear to me that you're not creating jobs on the other side, just right. in post-production. Yeah. I think especially in filmmaking, there's no end to places where you can add somebody who's like artistically influencing the project, and, and therefore, you know, you'd need a human-level AI to really replace those people. Right. You can't just do that by algorithm. But again, we're in that space of creative work, which is, you know, creative work is not the largest job sector right now. And if that continues to be the case, we still have a problem. If creative, if the creative sector explodes in the future, then maybe we're okay. But I think like, this doesn't change the fact that looking at today's numbers, I mean, these kinds of jobs are not the main source of employment anyways. Correct. And already the, that sector is subject to superstar economics and to some extent, um, so, you know, I don't think it's going to go away. I think there will still be, you know, film editors and cinematographers in the future, but that it's hard to believe that it's going to be a, a larger population of people doing that kind of work than it is right. now. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I, of course, uh, Ludwig seems to have the right idea. He's thinking forward to, um, you know, a new medium and uh, trying to jump ship before, uh, before TV becomes um, yeah let me just say i i I feel like our listeners are probably going to be fine i like to think that our listeners are (laughs) are ahead of the curve well um you know they had the great fortune to listen to our podcast and i I assume assume everybody here already thought this stuff before no yeah it's it's no thanks to us i think it's just hopefully our audience self-selects uh for a certain type sure um and so actually along those same lines we got another email from someone named adrian garcia oh, yeah, this is our our political our politician friend down in mexico who we uh yeah, had a couple of interactions yeah we've with. had a few interactions with him yeah um well here's here was the main thing that he had to say that i thought was interesting is he, he re- answered a question for us right we had asked about truck drivers right, right? 
uh, or dri- people who drive for a living in general. We want to know, do any of our listeners fall into that category? Right. And or do, or they, do they know, know anybody, anybody who right. does? And, and who's thinking about the fact that their job's going to be replaced? And his report is not good along those lines. Right. Well, so Adrian reported that he has a lot of friends who are truck drivers in Mexico uh, where he lives. And not a single one of them, he said, uh, feel threatened by machines. And his uh, reasoning was, I'm quoting here, mainly because they don't know the tech is going to become available. That worries Adrian, and it worries me and John as well. That uh, That is exactly the biggest danger, I think, of this type of technology. Well, and it made me think about... If you don't know it's coming, and then yeah. it feels like overnight, with no warning, the thing that you did is no longer valuable. Right. And um, and it made me change sort of like, because I, you know, we talk about the issues, right? Right. And I think, oh, we, we got to get the issue out there. Right. And it made me realize, well, actually, yeah, it's good to get the issue out there, but actually you just want to get the straight up tech news out there in a way. You just want people to literally know these things exist. You almost, even without commentary, it's like, it kind of speaks for itself, right? If, if somebody knows that self-driving cars exist and can be, made functional soon. I feel like that it doesn't, you don't need that much commentary to do the math about your job at that point. So it's like, I, I, I wish that the tech news would sort of filter down more easily to people because I don't feel like it does. Right. I think um, when it's news about demonstrations or things that are going to be available in the future, um, that feels very abstract to a lot of people, you know? Um, when it's hard, as Kevin Kelly was talking about, it's hard for journalists to reliably fact check that stuff. It's like kind of a lot of work. That was what he was saying, right? right. Trying to see through all the smoke and mirrors that are being put in front right. of Right. And there's a lot of incentives by companies to make their stuff look better than it is. Right. Right. And so, yeah, this is really worrying. Uh, I guess one thing that is simple uh, that maybe could help is just basic information saying this technology is on the horizon and it, it could threaten your job <laughs> in simple terms. That's just you know, disseminated out there for people to see. But see, I was thinking that, I, don't know. I was thinking that, yeah, that, and, but that kind of information is out there. And then I was thinking, well, maybe it just doesn't really have an audience, you know, the same way that like political news has an audience, right? People care about the latest election and so on. But I feel like it, it's weird. I mean, I, I think there's something about tech news that actually, uh, like, I think we're weird is what I'm thinking. Like, I think, mm-hmm. and I think our audience is weird. No offense to our audience, but I think like <laughs> we're kind of, I, I suspect we're sort of this minority of people that like to stretch our brain to think about this stuff. Because when I talk to a lot of people, you just describe a new technology to them and they immediately, it seems like they're disturbed by it almost. Like right. they, don't, they shut down. They don't want to put their brain there. Yeah. And it, and to be honest, I actually sympathize because to me, it's almost like I still have that feeling too. I look at a new technology and I often feel a little disturbed by it, but like, I guess I, part of me kind of enjoys that experience. Right. But well, I, we have an idea of what the benefits can be. So you can get past your initial, oh, I have to learn something new, like trepidation right. and push forward into, oh, I learned this thing and now I can do this cool stuff. Right. I think tech news now i think the reason that it doesn't have an audience outside of the sort of affluent and nerdy uh subgroups that maybe we belong to sure um is that it's very focused on gadgetry on things you can buy on Mm -hmm. purchase decisions on 
you know, it's reviews, it's hype, it's you have to get this new phone, you have to, you know, have this new software service. It's not presented in the way that politics is as something that affects your life. So, and yeah. I feel like it's a presentational issue. I understand why the money and the existing market and the, con- you know, the conventional wisdom points to, oh, we'll treat it like promoting a capitalist like product category or whatever. But I can also see why that doesn't, that's not all that relevant to a Mexican truck driver who's probably not purchasing a lot of gadgets for himself. Right. The the hot new Samsung phone is like That's what, not interesting what the him. local tech news is talking about. And, and right. maybe for, I mean, just to throw an example out there, and right. that's not actually useful to someone who doesn't have a ton of disposable income. Right, right, exactly. Like you have to be in a, either nerdy about tech or very affluent to care. But you actually, you know, maybe which, which of the $650 cell phones is the best one or something. But I don't think... Like, I feel like there is a natural constituency that could be cultivated for more like tech culture news. That's more just about like, how is tech affecting you? Perhaps we just need more futurism in general, or futurology, to use the proper term. Like, in other words, you know, the nightly news has different departments, right? It has local news, international news, uh, politics, the weather report, you know, the f- if the future report was just, you know, not really tech news, because actually, like you said, tech right. news, I don't even like tech news, really, because tech right. news is so product-oriented. Well, the newspaper already has science news, which is like what came out of university labs this week, and it already has tech news, which is like gadgetry news. Right. But it doesn't really have like a tech culture, is the best way I can describe it, section. It doesn't have like a uh, science fact. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Like, um, it's like uh, how tech affects your life right um that's well i mean that's basically the genre that you and i are in so then the question is like is this right like is there an audience for this or not or is it like i was saying earlier of course i suspect there's an audience for this but i'm super biased right so i'm the exact wrong person to ask Um, right and you know maybe the audience for this is itself a you know we we make a pretty nerdy podcast and we appear to have a pretty intelligent listenership from the tone of the emails we get so we may be on the nerdy side of things but maybe there's a i think there's a indication that there's a market out there for a more mainstream dumbed down version of like what what we do uh because i see hints of it on some of the other podcasts that are out there Mm -hmm. and and in some of the economics writing that's out there and some of the other like sort of touches on this thing. Uh, but I don't know anybody that's really dedicated to an accessible, relevant technology and futurism news or futurology news that's right. a, that's aimed at our general readership. That's not aimed at, you know, people who know what this like is. Like who would be the mainstream figurehead for this type of thing, right? Like, like if oh, you could think of like a person for this, like, right. I mean, those of us who are in this, like, like nerdy, deep niche of this stuff, you know, we might be able to name some people, but they're not mainstream. Right. Um, I mean, I'm thinking somebody who's like, you know, good looking, who could like anchor a television show, who also right. makes this stuff accessible. Right. And like is more of a presenter. Right. Yeah. Who is our Neil deGrasse Tyson? Right. Yeah. The Neil deGrasse. 
deGrasse Tyson of the future. We've talked about this we actually need before. The Neil deGrasse Tyson of the future. Because Neil deGrasse Tyson is not this person. Neil no, deGrasse Tyson is the Neil deGrasse Tyson of science. He's great at talking about the stars, but whenever I hear him talk about AI, it's like it's there's like basic things I feel like he hasn't thought about or read, you know? Yeah, well, and that's not what he does. He's exactly. he's, he's about he's talking to you about like physics, chemistry, basic science, physical science. Right. And he's awesome at that. Yeah, we need a Neil deGrasse we Tyson of the future. A Neil deGrasse Tyson of futurism and um, particularly of this sort of more humanist or cultural futurism. I think that's where we mostly lack. Yeah, someone who can talk about this future technology, but in a way that makes it accessible and not like immediately threatening. Like, I mean, we want people to be aware of the dangers, but like someone who doesn't like, isn't going to frighten people off by like going off the deep end too fast this as is, we like to do. And as many I, of us like to do, this is killing me. Like I'm racking my brain trying to figure out who this person, I mean, who, I, who, I, who I'm, I'm pretty person. confident this person doesn't exist. There might be someone you could elevate to this person. That's status. what I mean. Like I'm thinking like if you were, if we were going to produce were the show, Hollywood producer, yeah and you had the mandate to make this show who would be your pie in the sky host listeners tell us right tweet (laughs) us this yeah at rtf underscore podcast on twitter tweet us your host suggestion for the the cosmos of the future basically i think that's a good place to end yeah, let's end there. Uh, we have a couple more uh, messages that I think we'll get to in a future episode. Yeah, if we didn't talk about yours today, we may talk about it next week or, or next time, rather. Sorry about our output, but actually the good news to report on that is that we're in the final stretches of finishing our graphic novel, which roughly a year ago, you, our listeners, helped fund. So we're super excited about that, and we're going to continue working hard on that so we can get that out after which we might do a few more of our traditional episodes. Right. We are uh, hard at work doing the, the last like sort of tedious labor involved in, in getting the book out. And in case you're not familiar with this, this is our graphic novel called Let Go. It's a fictional story about a family in the future. It deals with many of the concepts we talk about on the show. And it tries to avoid some of the uh, egregious sci-fi cliches that we like to complain about. Exactly. Um, you can check it out, uh, the Kickstarter, uh, if you go to letgocomic.com. But uh, at this point, there's just it's just updates uh, because the, the thing is closed. But we'll have the book done and, and like available in some fashion, uh, I think. It's getting close. It's getting uh, exciting. Relatively soon. Yeah. Uh, and if you did uh, uh, contribute to the Kickstarter, then you can expect to get your, your stuff soon. Awesome. Okay, thanks very much for listening. So until next time, I'm Ted Cumper. I'm John Perry. And you've been listening to Review the Future. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.